morning, everyone. My name's Rebecca. Um, we're going to be reading from the book of 2 Samuel this morning. Um, last year we read 1 Samuel, and uh, we read there that God made Saul Israel's first king, but he disobeyed God, and so God anointed David to be the next king. Saul tried unsuccessfully to kill David, and finally Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle. And the story continues in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So we'll be reading from verses 1 to 12. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Our second reading is from John chapter 7. you find that on page 867. Um, I'll be reading verses 1 to 5. And then we'll be continuing from verse 14 to 24. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. 
It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Thank you, Rebecca and Isabel. Let me pray. Uh, please keep that part of God's word open, John chapter 7, and uh, then we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, who uh, your son, who is so confronting and surprising often. And Father, we pray that today, despite the heat, uh, you'd help us to think carefully and to think humbly at this part of your word, so that we might hear what we really need to hear, and we pray that you'd change our thinking where it needs to be changed. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, you'll see there's no outline in there. I didn't manage uh, this week to get an outline in. Um, there you go. There it is. It's on the screen. Uh, that's where we'll be going. If that helps you to follow along, as you can see, there's, there's a bit of a theme in there. Oh, we, we live in a society which more and more, I, I feel like this, that our society is more and more challenging the truths of Christianity, the Bible's claims about Jesus. I think more and more our society is putting the message of Christianity under the microscope and they're giving their verdict, which is false, irrelevant, barbaric, out of date, contradictory, guilty. I don't know how you feel when you, uh, you know, sometimes you come across those sophisticated sounding arguments for why this bit of the Bible can't be true. Uh, why there are contradictions or um, arguments from new atheists and Richard Dawkins. I don't know how you feel when you come across those kind of things on the internet or in books or whatever. Do you sometimes feel just a little bit insecure? You know, you hear these clever people making these arguments and you think, actually, how do I know that it's not just a big pile of wishful thinking? How can, I, how can I be sure that, that this is really true? Or, or if we looked at the facts objectively and scientifically, would we decide that, no, actually it's all just made up? Or maybe for some of you, you haven't actually decided yourself yet quite what you think of Jesus, what you're going to make of him. Maybe you're still assessing him, measuring up his claims, examining Jesus yourself to decide whether you're going to give him the tick. Or not. See, one way or another, all of us are interested in the question of Jesus, right? Is Jesus the Son of God? And all of us, one way or another, 
are in the business of judging Jesus. Judging Jesus. And yet, and yet, see it turns out I think very few people in our society, our sceptical society, realise just what a dangerous business it is to start judging Jesus. Can we judge Jesus in the first place? It's, it's not a simple question to answer, actually. Because, like I said, in one sense, all of us have to assess Jesus, think about him, work out what to do with Jesus. But as we're going to see today, in another sense, we are completely unable to judge Jesus. We're not qualified. We can't do it. And it's all too easy to judge Jesus and end up condemning yourself. That's what we're going to see from uh, today's passage from John chapter 7. And I hope that as we look at that, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, I hope that it will actually give you peace about your faith in Jesus um, and your trust in him. Uh, Now, we're returning to John's gospel today after a long break. So in the term one of last year, we worked through John chapters 1 to 6 to get you up to speed really fast. uh, Jesus has already come and presented himself as the Son of God, the one who came down from God his Father to bring life and light to everyone who believes in him. And he didn't just announce himself, he also did these amazing, miraculous signs, uh, which were like little pictures of what he came to do, and they demonstrated that he is the one who came to give life to people who believe in him. But... uh, The things that Jesus said and did, they were also political dynamite. Uh, Right from the very beginning, the religious leaders, especially in Jerusalem, the capital, they hated Jesus. Uh, They were looking for a chance to kill him from very early on. But by the end of chapter 6, we saw that even the ordinary people, the crowds, they just found him too much. Okay, at, at first they were really impressed and attracted by these miraculous, powerful signs. But by the end of chapter six, they were deserting Jesus on mass in hordes. And over the next few chapters, we're going to see that that opposition is going to keep rising. And at the heart of it all is the question: Who is this guy Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? Now, as chapter 7 begins, that first bit that Isabel read, you can see how this rising hostility, it starts to limit Jesus in his movement. Okay, We're told that he started to stay around Galilee, quiet Galilee in the north, and not go down to Judea and Jerusalem in the south, where the religious leaders were. Now, he didn't stay up north because he was scared of dying. Actually, he came to die. He stayed up north because it wasn't yet time for him to die. But in the rest of chapters 7 and 8, we get told about one foray that Jesus made, one trip that Jesus made down into the lion's den uh, to, to Jerusalem, the capital, for an annual festival called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Feast of, um, of Tabernacles. Uh, we're not going to go through the first little bit of the, the chapter, but we'll jump down to verse 11 where John sets the stage at this festival. Uh, in Jerusalem, and you can see there why Jesus had to be so careful. Okay, have a look at verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? 
Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Now, Jesus hadn't showed up at the festival yet. He waited deliberately. So he's not even there, but already everyone is talking about him. At the festival, all the pilgrims have arrived. The leaders, did you notice, the leaders are asking, where is he? Believe me, it's not because they want his autograph. Okay. And the rest of the people, they're, they're debating, they're muttering, they're all, they're all giving their opinion, right, about Jesus. Is he, is he good or is he bad? Uh, if you missed the news two days ago, Brexit finally happened. Brexit happened. The, Britain left the EU, officially. What that means is that we get to enjoy another barrage of opinions on social media about is this the best thing that's ever happened to Britain or is it going to destroy them and it's a disaster. And the thing about social media is that everyone's an expert, right? So on social media, the people who are actually qualified to give an informed opinion, they don't get any more of a voice than any old wacko who just comes up and says, oh yeah, no, I reckon this. Okay, everyone's an expert on social media. Everyone gets the same voice. Well, in Jesus' day, they didn't have social media, but this festival was kind of like that in Jerusalem. They're all together, and everyone's got their opinion, and they're all sprouting their opinions. Is this Jesus guy good? Is he bad? Does he deserve to die? Jesus wasn't even there yet, and there were already judges everywhere. Well, they get their chance to judge Jesus up close, because in verse 14... Jesus arrives halfway through the festival and the first thing he does in verse 14 is goes up to the temple, the temple courts, and he starts to teach. And then in verse 15, uh, have a look at verse 15, John says, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Uh, Now, when John says the Jews were amazed, he doesn't mean happy amazed. Okay? He doesn't mean, oh, this is wonderful. He means they were indignant amazed. They, they were like just, what is going on with this guy? They were offended, scandalized. See, uh, standing up in the temple to teach publicly, that was something that only the most respected and well-trained rabbis were allowed to do not some yokel from the country who didn't have any training. Just imagine if there's an important service in St Andrew's Cathedral in Town Hall. In fact, there is an important service coming up uh, in a couple of weekends. Vincent Chan, uh, one of our assistants at Fairfield, is going to be ordained with a whole lot of uh, young ministers. A couple of weekends. So imagine, Vino's ordination service, everyone's there gathered, Huge formal occasion. It's time for the sermon, the Bible talk. The Archbishop of Sydney gets up and he's on his way to the pulpit and suddenly this guy just runs in from the side. Random guy off the street gets up and goes, oh, glad you're all here. Well, let me tell you what I think about God. Right? You would be amazed, correct? You would be amazed. That's the kind of amazed that they were because according to them, Jesus had no right to be there. Only rabbis could teach and Rabbis weren't allowed to make up their own teaching. They weren't allowed to come out with whatever they wanted. They were only allowed to repeat and explain the teachings that they had received from their mentors and masters, from the great rabbis of the past. 
This guy, Jesus, wasn't qualified. He hadn't learned from the masters, the rabbis, and he was just making stuff up himself. That's why they were judging Jesus' teaching. Well, listen to Jesus' answer in verses 16 to 19. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but whoever seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, uh, Jesus does two things with this answer. Okay, so first of all, he says, no, no, you've got it wrong. I'm not making up my own teaching. I did receive it from someone, but not just from one of the master rabbis. I received it from the one who sent me. That is God himself, God my father. Okay, so it's a huge claim. But as well as that, um, Jesus is throwing their judgment of him back in their faces. Uh, In a a sense, he's saying to them, you know, they're they're questioning whether Jesus is qualified to teach. He's saying, well, are you really qualified to judge me and to judge my teaching? See, what kind of people um, are actually qualified to assess, to evaluate the Son of God? Is it the people with the highest IQ, uh, the best education? Is it the most intelligent people? Well, look again at verse 17. Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. See, you can't actually judge Jesus and his teaching correctly unless your heart is already in line with God and his will. Because recognizing Jesus, uh, it's not just a matter of like, examining a specimen under a microscope or making some mathematical calculations. We are moral and spiritual creatures and our thinking on moral and spiritual issues is fundamentally twisted and distorted by the ugly things that are in our hearts, by our selfishness and greed and the desires that we want that are actually evil. And and when it comes to Jesus, you and I and everyone in our world, we are not pure and innocent judges. And that means that we actually can't judge Jesus objectively and impartially, kind of scientifically. Our judgment is distorted. Magistrates are some of the most um, respected people in our society, aren't they? We have a lot of respect for judges, magistrates. Uh, Let me tell you about a former judge in Pennsylvania, a guy called Mark Chiavarella. Uh, He was a judge who was very well known and respected for cleaning up the streets. Uh, He was a tough judge, uh, and especially for getting juvenile delinquents off the streets where they were causing havoc and into juvenile detention centres. He sentenced thousands of young offenders and cleaned up the streets of Pennsylvania. Was he a good judge? Yes? No? Maybe? Uh, What if I told you that all along for years... Mark Chiavarella was taking bribes, hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes from friends of his who were property developers. Property developers who were building 
private juvenile detention centers. His judgments were corrupted and distorted by his greed. He was doing it all for personal profit, laundering the money, and he got 28 years in prison as a result. It's pretty clear. Was he a good judge? No. He was an evil judge. His judgments were distorted by the greed in his heart. Well, the same goes for us when it comes to Jesus. You can't judge Jesus by standing over him as if you're the magistrate cross-examining him. Because your heart and my heart is too corrupted by our rebellion against God himself. So you can only begin to judge Jesus, not by standing over him, but by sitting at his feet and listening humbly to his words. Listening to him. You can only know the truth about Jesus by humbling yourself before God and admitting, no, I need to be shown the truth and God's path. Well, uh, in the next little bit, Jesus brings up uh, another thing that he was judged on, and that was his goodness. Um, That is, he was judged and condemned for not being good, for being someone who broke God's law. Now, uh, this is going to seem maybe a little bit obscure and strange to us, uh, but the reason that Jesus was, was condemned as a lawbreaker a number of times was because he did miracles of healing on the Sabbath. Um, now, if you remember from last year, we saw one of those in chapter 5. Jesus healed a man who'd been a complete invalid for 38 years, instantly, totally healed this man. But he did it on the Jewish day of rest, Sabbath day. And uh, actually, that is the one miracle that Jesus talks about in verse 20. Verse 20, when he says to them, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Okay, again, this is not happy amazed. This is you wanted to kill me amazed. Okay, that's the miracle, the the healing of the man on the Sabbath in chapter 5. And for the the Jewish leaders, uh, the fact that he did these powerful works on the day that was dedicated to God, that meant he was evil. He was a lawbreaker. He was a rebel and disobedient. And again, Jesus' answer is going to seem a little bit obscure, strange, uh, but there's there's something important going on here. He he talks about the fact that the Jews themselves were happy to circumcise baby boys on the day of rest, the Sabbath day. Have a look uh, from, listen to verses 22 and 23. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Uh, Now, on a more, I guess, superficial level, simple level, Jesus is exposing their their hypocrisy here. Okay, so the, the Jews in his day, they have these sort of complicated arguments to explain why we're not allowed to break the Sabbath law, but actually... The law about circumcision trumps the law about Sabbath. So we're allowed to break the Sabbath law to make sure that we circumcise boys on the eighth day. Okay, Jesus is showing their hypocrisy. Well, if if that's this good thing that you're allowed to do to break the Sabbath, why is my healing a whole man on? Why is that not a good thing that I'm allowed to do? So he's, he's exposing their hypocrisy here in their treatment of the law. And he's just told them, you don't obey the law of Moses anyway. But I think Jesus is doing something more profound here. It's, it's something that he does over and over and over in his teaching. What he's, what he's showing them and, and hinting and telling them is, 
don't you realize, haven't you seen all that stuff in the Old Testament, that law that you're so obsessed about, it was all pointing to me. That was why God put it there. So you notice how he, he makes a parallel between circumcision in the Old Testament law and what he did in this miraculous sign. Okay, so he, Circumcision for, for the Jewish people of the day, so one of the things about circumcision, it was a symbol of consecrating someone to God. It was a symbol of someone being cleansed of their impurity so that they could be presented to God. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't you realize, when that was all symbolic stuff, don't you realize that that dedicating someone to God, that was just a symbolic ritual pointing towards what I've come to do, which is to cleanse the whole person and make you completely restored and right for relationship with God. Circumcision, like countless other things through the Old Testament, was a shadow, a picture that was fulfilled in Jesus, and that's how God set it up. Uh, if you flip back a page to uh, John chapter 5, 39 and 40. John 5, 39 and 40. This is what Jesus had said to the Jewish leaders not long before. 539, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, these, these religious experts, they were, they were so obsessed with finding little things in the Old Testament that they could condemn Jesus for that they missed the glorious fact that the whole story, everything in the Old Testament, was this big shining light, shining forward and falling on Jesus. He fulfilled it all. And I think that's what Jesus means. It's part of what Jesus means in verse 24, back in John 7. In verse 24, where he says, Stop judging by mere appearances and instead judge correctly. Okay, I think he's saying, don't... don't Judge superficially and miss God's entire message in the scriptures. When you, um, when you look at and, and hear and see criticisms of the Bible, of the Christian message of Jesus um, in the media or in popular books or whatever, very often I think so many of them are, are little cheap shots about particular details. Okay? They take this one little detail in a verse and they go, Aha! There's a mistake! And I'm going to show you that this is a mistake because yada, 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 whatever. Because it doesn't fit with our modern scientific knowledge uh, or because this I read this in a historian or whatever it is. And they point out these things that they find offensive or outdated or apparent little mistakes. And so they say, see, it's obvious. The Bible's a load of rubbish now. Come over to our happy atheist family and forget about that Jesus guy. But that's actually not the way to assess Jesus and the whole Bible. That's not, not how you do it, by looking to see if I can find a mistake there. Aha, I've got it. The way to assess Jesus correctly, to judge correctly, is to actually take the time to look at the whole Bible and see whether the one massive claim that outshines everything else is true. That is that God has arranged the whole Bible and all of history and everything in it and all the people, he's arranged that whole lot so that when Jesus comes, we would recognize him, to be fulfilled in Jesus. See, if that's true, then so many of those nitpicking little 
cheap shots, they actually, they just kind of disappear. I mean, it, it doesn't mean we don't answer them. We do. And actually, the Bible, I'm very confident that the Bible can stand up for itself. If you actually take the time to sit down and, and uh, read it carefully, we still do the hard work. But you can't judge Jesus correctly by taking one verse and going, aha, there's a mistake. You only begin if you humbly take the time to search the whole scriptures in the light of Jesus, who is the one who fulfills it all. Well, uh, the last bit of our passage, the crowd finally gets to debating and giving their opinions on the most important question of all, who is this guy Jesus? Okay, remember that one? Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah or is he not? And once again, they're very quick to judge Jesus' identity and to reject him. No, he's not. And uh, again, they end up condemning themselves. Have a look at um, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Uh, Now, in Jesus' day, there was this popular idea, it's not in the Bible, but it was a popular idea that when the Messiah came, he would be completely unknown. No one would know who he was. He wouldn't appear until suddenly, all at once, God would exalt him and give him power over all the nations of the world. And so these people are looking at Jesus and going, no, you can't be him because we know your address. Like we know where you live. We know your parents are Joseph, that carpenter guy. You're from Nazareth. You're not the Messiah. Now the irony is they were partly right. Okay, Jesus was from Nazareth in a sense, at least from age two onwards. He was from Nazareth. But in a much more important sense, they had no clue where Jesus really came from or who Jesus had come from, that he'd been sent into the world that he himself created by God his Father. And so look at uh, the way Jesus replies in verses 28 and 29. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I'm wondering if he's being a bit sarcastic there. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Okay, so again, Jesus points out, no, no, you don't really know where I'm from if you just think I'm this guy from Nazareth. But again, there's something more important going on here. See, it's not just that they're missing some important fact. They just don't know that he's from God. The problem is they actually don't know the God who sent Jesus. Okay, even if they know something about God, they don't know God intimately and personally like Jesus, his son, does. Jesus is from God in a way that no other person has ever been. So what does that mean for our attempts to judge Jesus? To work out, is he true Or is he a liar? Is he the the Messiah or not? Well, to be brutally frank, it means that we are simply not in a position to do it. We can't stand in judgment over him. We are not in a position to be chief judge and executioner when it comes to the things of, of God and his son because 
Apart from Jesus, we can have no true knowledge of God. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know God. Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus would famously say, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's our dilemma, right? We want to be able to decide whether God's real. We want to be able to decide, is Jesus from God? But the only way that we can know God is by handing our lives over to Jesus first. We can only know God through faith in the one that he sent so that we can know him. By, by trusting in him. Okay, see, it turns out, this is the weird bit, right? It turns out you can't judge Jesus first and then decide if you're going to believe in him. You can't do it. You can only judge Jesus correctly by believing in him first. Because it's through faith in him that you know God, the one who sent him. Can I ask, um, are you feeling a bit uncomfortable by all this? Uh, are you kind of going, no, you're messing with my brain. Like, how can I be really sure then? How can I know whether what I believe is actually true or I'm just kidding myself? I hope you are feeling uncomfortable because Jesus makes us profoundly uncomfortable. See, Jesus here, he's, he's kind of uncovering the great self-deception of the human race when it comes to God. We think that come, that, sorry, we think that we are the ones who are in control when it comes to assessing God. We think we are the lords of wisdom and knowledge, and we think that we can judge Jesus like a scientist looking at a specimen in a Petri dish. But we are not in control when it comes to judging the things of God. He's the Lord. Jesus is the one who has rights to your life, rights to judge you. Not the other way around. And now, one of the reasons that we fall for that great self-deception is that when it comes to the natural world, in a sense, we are lords of wisdom and knowledge over the natural world because that's what God made us to be. He put us in that position as kings over creation under him. And that's why the sciences are such a good thing. It really is a good thing to stick worms and whatever else you're going to stick under a microscope or whatever it is, but to submit them to our judgment and examination and then come to conclusions and declare to the world the truths that we have determined. That, that's all a good thing because that's the place that God gave us in his world. That's the freedom he gave us in his world. The problem is thinking that you can treat Jesus the same way. That's the lie of the serpent back in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. You can stand over God's word and decide if it's good or not. We simply are not in a position to judge the things of God like we judge worms on the stars. And again, but that's really tricky, right? Because we, we, we have to make judgments about Jesus. We've got to, got to decide, okay? Not because Jesus comes and he says, oh, here it is. Here, here's some things that I think, but you know, you... You decide for yourself. I'm, I'm not that fussed. No, he doesn't do that. He comes and he declares, this is the truth. Drops it on us like a bombshell. Okay, it's the truth you can't avoid. But God doesn't force us to accept that truth. Okay, well, not yet. Anyway, not yet. Not until Jesus comes back as the judge of the living and the dead. For now, he gives us the option of submitting to that truth or rejecting it. Uh, he allows us to assess what his son has declared to us, you've still got to decide, 
So how do you do it? How, how can you judge Jesus correctly? Like he said in verse 24, how can you judge correctly? How, and how can you know for sure then that you've made the right call? Well, two things that I hope are obvious for now, and I'll, I'll finish with these. First of all, you can only do it with great humility. You can only do it with fear and trembling, not as Lord of spiritual truths, but recognizing that you are limited and frail and full of greed and corruption and things that God is still working in you, unworthy to judge your maker. We can only do it humbly sitting under his word. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and to tremble at my word. So that's the first thing. You can only judge Jesus with great humility. And secondly, I've said it already, but it's worth repeating. You can only judge Jesus correctly by believing in him. You won't recognize Jesus and you won't assess him correctly and you won't know God truly until you hand your life over to Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's how you assess Jesus correctly. Hear the gospel and respond, believe it. Now, I, I don't know if that makes you feel uncomfortable. It used to make me feel uncomfortable, that, that kind of thing. It, it, it sort of feels non-scientific, but it's, it's absolutely, it's a freeing thing to know that the way to assess Jesus correctly is to turn to him. And, and the paradox is that's actually how you can know objectively and truly, scientifically, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. By believing in him, believing his word, that he came to bring life. Because when you humbly hand your life over to Jesus, all of a sudden the whole Bible opens up. It all makes sense. Life makes sense. And all those things that God gave us to show that Jesus is his son, they'll fit into place. They'll fit into place. And God confirms for us, yes, welcome to my family through my son. Let me pray and uh, ask God to help us as we continue to wrestle with these things.